Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Get together a bunch of 60-year-olds. It might actually work with 30- or 40-year-olds, too. And ask them how many kids they knew when they were growing up who had allergies. And you're likely to see a bunch of blank stares. But get some 5-year-olds together in a room and ask them how many kids they know with food allergies. And chances are you're going to hear how this kid can't eat peanuts and this other kid can't drink milk and this other kid can't eat fish. Estimates are that peanut allergies have tripled amongst kids in the last few decades. And doctors, of course, have marveled at this shift. I would say it's been fairly dramatic, and I think the consensus is there to support that statement, although we certainly could use even better data to really drill down on it. That said, good estimates of food allergy prevalence you know, have shown pretty dramatic rises over the last few decades to the point where now... You know, in the U.S., you're talking about, you know, something like one in every 20 to one in every 12. That's Dr. Wayne Schreffler, director of the Food Allergy Center at Massachusetts General Hospital and one of the country's leading researchers on food allergies. Well, about a dozen years ago, facing this worldwide spike in allergies, particularly in the developed world, a team of researchers decided to figure out what was going on. In a landmark study, the LEAP study, they compared Jewish children in the UK to Jewish children in Israel, kids who they reasoned were part of the same relatively small diaspora, and they'd have similar genetic proclivities. What they found shocked them. The kids in the UK were 10 times as likely to have a peanut allergy. And when researchers looked for a reason why, they found one in the snack aisle. There's this very popular puff uh, called bomba that is uh, largely peanut flour based and not widely consumed uh, in the UK. And so even in kids with the same genetic background, there's this striking, you know, discrepancy. And yet in Israel, you know, very allergic population, incomparable in a lot of ways, high rates of even other food allergies, just this sort of striking difference in peanut allergy Mm. that emerged in that observation. Schreffler notes that the next thing that the researchers did was very smart. They couldn't be sure that eating this popular peanut snack was helping Israeli kids. Maybe there was something else about living in Israel that made the difference. So they turned the LEAP study into a trial that had some kids consume peanut-based food starting when they were just a few months old, and other kids avoid food with peanuts. At five years old, 3% of the kids who ate peanutty snacks had an allergy to peanuts. So 3% for the kids who ate peanuts. Of the kids who avoided peanuts, 17% were allergic to peanuts by age five. So you were five times more likely to be allergic to peanuts if you didn't eat them. The results were a wake-up call, says another top allergy researcher, Dr. Katie Allen, the director of population health at Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. If you delay the introduction of peanut beyond the first year of life, you significantly increase your risk of peanut allergy. And all across the world, guidelines about how parents should feed their kids started to change. But the fight to reverse the surge in allergies continues. And the quest goes on to figure out how this went from a minor, almost unheard of issue a generation ago to what Alan has called the new epidemic of allergic disease. We never really measured it 30 or 40 years ago. 
because it wasn't around, like you don't measure nothing, um, and we know it's around now. And the estimates of 5% are bang on. We've just measured them here in Australia in the 10 to 14-year-old age group, and it's 5% here in Australia. We measured a very high rate at the age of one of 10%, and that's been regarded as quite staggering worldwide. No one thought it would be that high, but we think, unfortunately, Australia has an extra problem than everybody else. We're extra specially bad with food allergy, and we're not quite sure why that is, although we have theories about that. But the estimate of 5% or 1 in 20 over the first uh, 18 years of life is pretty consistent in the developed countries, not in developing countries. Hmm. So you pose the kind of next really important question yourself, which is, okay, so why? So you do want to talk about some of the reasons that you think cases of allergies might be surging. Well, I think the first thing to comment on is that food allergy is possibly a sort of second wave epidemic, and that is because asthma and eczema and hay fever um, rose in the in the 90s and, and around the turn of the century. And we seem to be able to pinpoint the rise in food allergy to be lagging behind that. Now, we don't know why that is exactly, but it does seem food allergy is a sort of new kid on the block, and it seems to be somewhere, uh, you know, 10, 20 years later, it seems to be a slight lagging of a situation. The question why, I mean, the, the short answer answer is we don't exactly know why. We have a lot of theories and I always call them the five Ds because I can't tell you how many times I've tried to explain to people the various and many reasons. And in fact, everybody in the world seems to have their own theory. I keep saying to people, because we all need to eat, we're all fascinated by how can something as innocuous as a peanut potentially and in fact actually kill somebody. Mm -hmm. Um, But we had an interesting natural history experiment where we looked at um, children in Melbourne with an Asian background had two to three times more challenge-proven food allergy or parent-reported nut allergy in three different studies that we've looked at. And so we looked at another study where we looked at children who were born in Asia and then came to Australia in their first four years of life and they were actually protected from food allergy. So that suggests something to do with the developed world environment and that's what we're all, I think, honing in on at the moment. Wow. Okay. And have you been able to follow that and try to figure out, like, why is that? What were these kids doing in Asia that was protecting them from developing this nut allergy? Well, the first thing we'd say is that we have found that Asian, children of Asian extraction who um, who live in Australia have a lot more food allergy. We know that from many different studies now. So we've had this theory that we call the 5D theory um, and includes sort of three hypotheses. The first one um, is what a lot of people talk about, the hygiene hypothesis, we're too clean is what the public would say. Um, we found in a number of our studies, and it's been replicated in a number of other large population-based studies, that having a sibling is protective. And we also found having dogs inside the house is protective. Now, you can't mm. recommend that as a public health initiative, uh, you have dogs <laughs> right. and kids, but um, there's something about right, right. that shared microbiome. Probably don't want to think too closely about what sharing with the dogs is, but it, right. it sort of sort of speaks to this something about shared um, infection or shared microbiome or even shared parasites. We don't exactly know. Mm-hmm. The second area of interest is actually the one that's most scientifically valid at the moment. So, so the first two of the five Ds are um, what I call dogs and dribble, just to put give it the D acronym. Uh, <laughs> the second one is diet and dry skin. And that's that children with eczema, particularly early onset eczema, so eczema that occurs in the first few months of life, 
are far more likely to have food allergy. That's really very strongly associated. And so we think it's to do with the skin barrier not being good enough and the system sort of uh, sensitises the children to being allergic. And then if they don't actually eat it at the right time, so the diet is not right, then the immune system's not trained to uh, tolerate the food. So that's the sort of called the dual allergen exposure hypothesis. So you sensitise through the skin and if you delay introducing it in your diet, then you inc- that's sort of a, a perfect storm for an increased risk. So now all the guidelines around the world, in Australia, in the US, in Europe, now all say um, introduce solids such as peanut, in peanut paste in the, in the case of infants, in the first year of life. We know that that's a definite recommendation. So that's the sort of four Ds. The fifth D is our special D here down in in Australia, down under. Um, We are the only country in the world that doesn't supplement or fortify the food chain supply with vitamin D. So we have a very high rate of vitamin D deficiency and we worry that vitamin D might be the reason we've got the extra blip down here. Okay. Wayne, when you hear that sort of array of different possible reasons that allergies have surged... Do you hear one or two reasons that jump out to you and you think, like, to you, these are the most promising possibilities? Yeah. Well, I think it's likely to be, you know, more than one answer, right? And I I think as sort of Katie laid it out, we see sort of this lag effect in food allergy. But we've been witnessing sort of this increase in immune-related disease that's correlated with something about modern lifestyle or or, or specifically the Western type, asthma, hay fever, et cetera, you know, that have been going up really since, you know, the turn of the 20th century um, and um, and then increases in food allergy more recently. And it's not even just allergic disease. So the epidemiology of other immune-related diseases, um, say something like Crohn's disease or type 1 diabetes, um, you know, shares some similarities, striking similarities that I think might be an important hint to the importance of something like, say, the hygiene hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. So the dogs and dribble, was it, Katie? <laughs> the the other thing, though, that, you know, I think the LEAP study has taught us about this was sort of uh, allergists deserve some of the blame because, you know, when I came out of training, for example, um, you know, the recommendations were avoid, you know, these uh, foods that are most strongly or frequently associated with allergy. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Dr. Wayne Treffler, the director of the Food Allergy Center at Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Katie Allen, the director of population health at Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Um, So I want to ask both of you, um, and Wayne, I'm going to start with you on this. How do we stand in terms of being able to treat allergies? Like, I know you're working on stuff. I know Katie has been working on stuff. What looks promising and what may end up being the thing that helps people deal with their allergies or maybe even helps prevent them in the first place? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. And those two categories actually are the place to start, right? Because that's a super important difference that often gets conflated a little bit Mm -hmm. in people's minds. This question of, you know, prevention or maybe prevention in a high risk setting, um, maybe when there's a positive test there, but there's not known to be an established allergy versus treating someone who definitely has a known uh, allergy. And uh, I think it's important to keep those separate in people's minds for discussion, even though superficially it can look like some of the things that we do are very similar. Namely, uh, you know, there's a lot of interest on the treatment side in 
um, introducing the food in a gradual manner, um, something often called oral desensitization or oral immunotherapy. Is this for somebody who already And this is for someone with established allergy. allergy. Okay. It's still, um, you know, largely in the research Okay, so giving venue. them a little bit of the thing right. that they are allergic to. Exactly. Okay. And increasing that gradually over time such that you increase the person's let's call it tolerance, clinical tolerance. Immunologists will get sort of worked up about how you use that word carefully mm -hmm. um, to the food. Okay. And this is something that, in fact, you know, a company has in a phase three clinical trial right now uh, for peanut allergy. And I think it will be helpful for people. And the evidence is that you can make people less sensitive. There are some important pitfalls to it. One is that that state of increased tolerance um, for many people is quite transient and tenuous. And so they really have to keep up with regular hmm. exposure for quite a long time, perhaps okay. indefinitely for some. And the other is that uh, for many people, they experience, you know, some what we'll call in a clinical trial adverse events, you know, okay. some symptoms related to the treatment, including occasionally some pretty significant reactions. So, so I assume if there's a drug company that's pretty far along with this, mm -hmm. that they've seen some good results, that people with allergies have been exposed to the food that they're allergic to, and it's looking pretty good. It's gotten through phase two. Okay. Um, I, you know, and it's in phase three now, and it's, okay. it's, it's likely to get approval. This is, you know, a study um, being conducted in multiple countries uh, throughout the world, multiple countries in Europe, Australia, the U.S., Canada. The other thing that's in phase three, just to, in terms of things that are closest to the clinic, is, you know, a, a patch that one wears on the skin uh, every day um, that has peanut allergen on it and exposes the immune system in that manner. Um, and that also got through phase two and is currently in phase three. So instead of like a nicotine patch, that's right. you're wearing a peanut patch. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't um, help with smoking, though. It's very, uh, specific, <laughs> very specific to your problem. To yeah. your problem. Okay, so Katie, if you had to make your best guess as to like when we might see either a cure or a major reduction in people living with food allergies, I just wonder, are we looking five years out here? Are we looking 10 years out, 20 years out? Just give me a sense of, of what this seems like to you. So the first thing is prevention and the second thing is cure. I mean, I think with prevention, um, we've actually, we looked at health nuts 10 years ago when we looked at 5,300 children. We found one in 10 had food allergy at the age of 12 months. We're now repeating that study 10 years later. It's called early nuts. And we hope to see a reduction because if optimal introduction of peanut is going to prevent peanut allergy, mm -hmm. we should see that here in Melbourne. Because when we did health nuts 10 years ago, 80% of people were not introducing peanut in the first 12 months of huh. life. We've now got preliminary data from the early nuts trial, 90% are. Okay. So you think in the next few years we're going to get a lot of answers? For prevention, yes. yes. And and I'm hopeful there might be something in the next few years for cure. I mean, they're very promising studies mm -hmm. and it's an extremely exciting place to be. Because as a researcher, what's what sort of condition would you work on that wasn't around 30 to 40 years ago? Mm -hmm. You know, we have on one side people saying, oh, it's overdiagnosed. And on the other side people say, well, you didn't see it 30 to 40 years ago. You must have been underdiagnosing it. Mm -hmm. No one believes that one. Because when a patient turns up and they describe their child had their first bite of a peanut butter sandwich and their face swelled up, their eyes swelled up, they start to cough and wheeze the parents aren't making that up. It's, mm -hmm. And they say, we think they're allergic to peanut, doctor. And you go, yep, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. and when... We're geniuses, right, Katie? <laughs> we are. Yeah, what do you see? Well, I'm a little more, I think the prevention side is um, moving along really well. I think there's a lot of exciting data in the pipeline. Okay. And I couldn't agree with Katie more strongly that we really have to have, you know, the data to inform the guidelines. And then we have to do a better job, I think, at 
pushing those guidelines out in kind of a clearly understood you know manner. On the treatment side, it is a really exciting time in immunology research. Um, I would say that there are very few examples in medical history of really transforming a disease that is chronic in the way that food allergy is. Food allergy is a funny disease, right? Because if people are avoiding their allergen, they're perfectly fine. And yet the burden uh, on the quality of life is significant mm-hmm. for people because they, you know, they worry about their kids um, and, and food is so social and so it intersects with sort of all aspects of life. But I just, you know, feel compelled to make a plug for the importance of sort of the basic immunology research that uh, I think is so necessary for you know, broadening our understanding of mechanisms um, so that we'll kind of have more biological targets to um, focus on for those kids that we can't prevent. Hmm. I mean, just to sound very geeky, I mean, I often say this, you know, there's so many conditions as medical researchers that we're trying to stem or to deal with, um, you know, Alzheimer's, cancer, um, infectious diseases. Right. Um, and you sort of say, well, they've been around for eons, you know, they've been around as long as man. But what condition, you know, other than some of the really new infectious conditions such as HIV, but what other conditions have occurred in our lifetime that weren't there mm-hmm. before? So we know allergic disease, particularly food allergy, wasn't around in any great, um, you know, number 30 to 40 years ago. It's probably more like 25 years ago, in which case something has happened, right. something in the very, very proximal period of time. And if that, if we can identify what that mm-hmm. one or many things are, Wow, how right. fantastic that, you know, we could turn it, turn back the tide. And I, I think that's that palpable sense we have of there's an aha moment. And if we can use the evidence base, not just a guess, but an evidence base, well, then science is doing its mm-hmm. job. Katie Allen is the Director of Population Health at Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne, Australia. And Wayne Schreffler is the Director of the Food Allergy Centre at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thanks so much to you both. Great. Thanks, Kara. Thanks, Kara. Warning, some people have allergies to peanut butter. Make sure you check before you share. There's a food going round that's a sticky, sticky goo. By the way, if you're wondering what the most common food allergies in the U.S. are, here are the top seven according to the Food and Drug Administration. Milk, eggs, fish, crustaceans, tree nuts, like almonds and walnuts, peanuts, wheat, and soybeans. We've got more about the Breakthrough Leap study looking at peanut allergies on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. And you can let us know about your experiences with allergies and prevention and treatment. Giant smooth peanut.